Section 42. Clippy, the effing clown. Though nothing more than a thin metal wire, Clip-It will help find what you need and keep it all together. Clip-It being introduced in Office 97. In early discussions, we attempted to explain how we had learned from the abysmal failure of Microsoft Bob, and that we had a plan. At one point, the conversation turned from stepping through a complex task in Excel to Bill G. bringing us to tears and playing back what he had heard. They were both tears of joy and tears of pain. It went something like this. Demo. The assistant will then appear and offer each step in sequence to create a chart, as the user interface does today. But it will be more friendly and approachable and have easy access to help content. Bill. So when I want to create a chart, the clown will pop up and say, I'm here to help, and no, not the clown, but assistant. The clown pops up, and then I'm clicking on the clown saying, clown, next, next, clown, next, or something just to create a chart. The assistant is just more approachable and a helpful version of the same number of clicks and steps you always had. Next, 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 and pretty soon, I just want the fucking clown to get out of the way. Bill often had these routines or short skits he would play out over and over. If you were the target, it was painful the first couple times. Then it was for show for the other attendees. Then you had to assert yourself. This was one of those. Through the entire rise and ultimate fall of the idea of an animated character or agent, which he referred to as a clown, this pattern, complete with the escalating, high-pitched, frustrated Bill G. voice, would make an appearance. I lost track of how many times he ridiculed the feature this way. Still, he doesn't get the right to say, told you so. This started with the earliest products based on an animated helper that were developed in the early 1990s and released while I was working as technical assistant, so I was quite familiar with the above routine. Then Microsoft's focus was on bringing software and PCs to children, and like all products for children, the general theory of education told us that products needed to be fun, engaging, and immersive, and different from business-oriented or grown-up products. A pair of products were developed together for Windows 3, Creative Writer and Fine Artist, a kid-oriented word processor and a drawing program. While these products were nominally about the basics of productivity, they were part of an entire animated world called Imaginopolis, hosted by the ever-present guide McZee, a lanky purple humanoid. It is easy to be dismissive of these products, but in fact, they contained enormous feature depth for the time. McZee was more than just a helper, but essentially the full user interface for the products. All the actions were directed through McZee. The online version includes some screenshots of Fine Artist and McZee taking over the full user experience. Measuring success in the new Microsoft Kids line was difficult because the unit sales weren't spectacular and because everything was new and the company was determined to stick with it. Remember, there's an old Microsoft reputation for taking three versions to get things done right. The spiritual successor to these two products was an even greater product risk as it was not just for kids, but for the entire home. The problem it needed solving was that people were buying home computers but lacked software to do home things like keep lists, write letters, track to-do items, and calendars. While there were business packages to do that, the general theory was that software for the home needed to be more friendly and approachable, especially because those not skilled in business computers would use it. The consumer division, where Microsoft Kids software was came from was filled with people on a mission to bring software to a broader audience. One of those was Karen Freeze, email Karen FR, 
who was the lead advocate and pioneer for the use of what was widely known in academic circles as social interface. Karen was co-leading program management for these new products and was deeply immersed in the cutting-edge technology. She was co-author of a 1994 paper, Seductive Interfaces, Satisfying a Mass Audience, with some of the early work in the area. Other authors on the paper were Stanford researchers Clifford Nass and Byron Reeves. This was serious work with some depth. Nass and Reeves, who would later consult with our efforts in office, developed their work into a book, The Media Equation, How People Treat Computers, Television, and New Media Like Real People and Places. The online version includes a screenshot of that book. Their research developed and provided evidence of a core thesis that humans treat computers and television and new media as real people and places. And beyond that, humans develop models for interacting with technology and media based on how those work and are designed. At the extreme, this explained frustration and fear of computers because of the general belief that computers are smarter than people, and so interacting with them took on traits of interacting with a much smarter and less tolerant human. This is what Karen, along with her co-leader and designer, Barry Lynette, email Barry L., set out to fix in developing Microsoft Bob, codename Utopia. No strangers to making easy-to-use software, Karen and Barry co-led the creation of Microsoft Publisher, a very successful and much-loved entry into what was known as desktop publishing, creating newspapers, newsletters, certificates, menus, signs, etc., aimed at small business and home. Like McZee, Microsoft Bob was an immersive environment. The experience, however, was less kid and more home. It was still animated, and it was still fun. Bob was the smiley face that occupied the middle letter O of the name Bob, though within the software, an ever-present puppy acted as the assistant and guide for using many modules of the product. Each module was depicted as a place to click on in the home. Click on a phone index for contacts, a pad of paper to write a letter, a checkbook for finances, a globe for geography quiz, gosh, a quiz, such a bill thing, and so on. The software had even more depth than the previous products. As an example, a typical home letter writing effort might be a complaint letter to an airline for lost luggage. Bob not only contained samples, but even maintained a list of airlines and addresses that it would use to pre-populate a complaint letter. And this was before the internet. The online version includes some screenshots of Microsoft Bob at work. At the January 1995 Consumer Electronics Show, Bob was launched to immense fanfare and broad media coverage across print and even morning television. There was so much enthusiasm about home computers, but before the internet, people were just not sure what to do with them, at least broadly. That said, the product was unfortunately not well-received and ran into the buzzsaw of technologists who did not simply buy into the shell or veneer Bob created around Windows. The online version includes an example of the Washington Post story from the Consumer Electronics Show, where Bob received amazingly favorable press coverage. Why was Microsoft going through all of this and making these risky or even edgy products? Many seemed puzzled by this at the time. In order to understand that today, one must recognize that using a PC in the early 1990s or before was not just difficult, but it was confusing, frustrating, inscrutable, and by and large, entirely inaccessible to most everyone unless you had to learn how to use one for work. In fact, using a computer usually meant signing up for an in-person class that would meet at night for a few hours over the course of several weeks. Often buying a computer came not with an extended warranty upsell, 
but one of these classes is upsell. It was this era when businesses would put out job opportunities for people that had one or two years of experience using a PC, preferably Lotus 1, 2, 3, and WordPerfect. These products with their dizzying array of keystroke commands and corded combinations of alt, control, and shift keys were difficult, if not bordering on impossible, for most people to master. As the past chapters have illustrated, Windows and graphical user interface were supposed to fix all this with its easy-to-use menus and direct manipulation with a mouse. Yet the exact opposite happened, because while those made accessing commands easier, the number of possible commands was growing at a rapid pace. It wasn't just that Word added bullets and numbering, but it added the myriad of options to stylize, format, and order paragraphs. And it added footnotes and endnotes and pagination, hanging indent, and so on. Then Excel and PowerPoint too. In order to mitigate the growing complexity of the products, Office developed an array of bolt-on utilities, from massive printed and bound books, wizards, pioneered and publisher, tutorials, getting started like a tutorial but shorter, even a friendly tip of the day that offered a quick refresher lesson when you launched a program. It got to the point where even those various forms of help needed an overview to explain them. Ironically, an aftermarket developed which packaged up all that information and expertise of authors to create even more help. Typically, owners of Office, or even those considering owning the product, would invest in a phone book-sized softcover book further explaining the use of the product. At first, this seemed cool. Then we started to realize the futility of our own product development efforts. The online version includes a whole collection of books from the time of using Office. The one constant we studied, the landscape of people using Office, was that getting anything done involved tracking down the nearby Office guru, the person that invested the time and effort to master the software more than the rest of the people in the office. Need to create a table, figure out a formula, or draw an org chart, then go down the hall and get help from a guru. The online version includes a slide showing the goals of assisting people with the product. Chances were high that the product did what you thought you wanted to do, but the path through the maze of commands was not only difficult, but fraught with the risk of destroying your work or getting to the document to a state that would make further work even more difficult. We would often receive letters detailing specific features or outcomes a customer would like to achieve, only to learn that the feature was already in the product. With Office 96, we set out to build the guru into Office to solve this growing problem of dissatisfaction with the product. The early love of Office was turning into early signs of resentment as the customer base grew. Early adopters loved the power of the product, but increasingly, new customers felt overwhelmed by their lack of mastery. We had a genuine customer satisfaction problem on our hands. The online version includes the goals of trying to master Office as a slide. As we knew from Nass and Reeves' research, people had confidence in the tool to get things done, but lacked a way to interact with it to find out how, unless the right human guru was helping. Our challenge was to build a software equivalent of the human guru. That software equivalent would start with the clown, as Bill G. called it, or assistant, as we called it. That is why the name of the internal implementation of the assistant was... TFC, in our Hungarian notation, TFC was the fucking clown. Even though Bill had ridiculed each social interface product, we were deep in the problem we needed to solve and optimistic we could figure out an approach. We needed to look no further than computers on Star Trek, which enabled Captain Kirk and Spock to tap into the vast resources with vague questions and open-ended problems. 
Similarly, the industry was buzzing with the idea of agents that would be able to do work on your behalf, such as find a cheap airline flight or schedule a meeting. Everywhere from Apple to the MIT Media Lab were talking about agents. There was ample evidence this was not simply a weird vision in our corner of the world. In fact, by some accounts, we were in a race to have the first and best agent or guru in the box. The lesson from Bob was clearly that an entire immersive environment would not work. Plus, there was no way we could do that for Office. We also knew that rewiring the entire interface to do everything through the step-by-step interactions with the assistant would not work. Instead, we wanted to combine the warmth and comfort of a social experience with the kind of help the guru provided in real life. While many would ultimately conclude that the paperclip was simply bolted on the side of office to provide cuteness, we made three big technology investments, even bets, to bring Clippy to market. The first step in asking a guru for help was to ask a question in your own language. Then the guru maps that question to typical answers or frequently asked questions, FAQ, that are known. You might ask, how to print sideways, and the guru knows to check the landscape option in the print dialog. Or, how do I hide the elephants in Word? And the guru knows you are talking about the Pilcrow symbol. A typical question might be even more abstract, such as, how do I format alternating lines in a spreadsheet? Which the guru might point to more sophisticated features of Excel rather than some direct formatting tools. This is precisely the technology we had developed and released for Office 95 as the answer wizard. In fact, we backported AnswerWizard to Office 95 because it was working pretty well and did not disturb the rest of the product. As mentioned previously, there was a collaboration with Microsoft Research, also a group from Stanford, that led this first pillar of the guru. Next, one of the things a guru does, at least a good guru, is watch over your shoulder when you're struggling. Often diagnosing a problem like trying to align two boxes in an org chart or get the columns of a table to be the right width is not so much being told the right answer as being told which step was where you went astray. We knew many tasks in office were composed of multiple steps that needed to be done in the right order. And often people would try something, click undo and try something else. We posited that if we could track these activities as the product was being used, we could either proactively or on request, hitting the help key or F1, offer a suggestion from our library of help topics for how to get the thing done right. For example, if a user seemed to be clicking around paragraph formatting and indenting, the system might know enough to suggest a help topic on formatting headings or paragraph spacing. And if a user was stuck, simply hitting F1 was a way to summon the guru using the context that had been accumulated over the most recent few minutes of use. This was another collaboration with Microsoft Research based on some early 1990s work using Bayesian math to build a model for making these guesses based on contextual cues. This work came out of Stanford's Artificial Intelligence Lab and formed the early AI efforts in Microsoft Research. It, too, was all the rage at the time in academic circles. The online version includes a movie showing Clippy in action. It was this part of Clippy that proved to be the most challenging to deliver on the promise. Deciding when to fire off the assistant, finding the balance to being helpful versus annoying, is precisely what the human guru finds challenging when looking over your shoulder. Too little help and the product remains frustrating. Too much help and the user just wants to hand the keyboard over and say, you do it. The artificial intelligence approach may or may not have been the right technology, but it proved inadequate at the time. 
The product had too many commands and entry points or simply too many decisions to make at any given time to be truly helpful. One mistake, well, really the mistake, was firing the assistant on the most simple and obvious effort in Word. The sequence of starting a new document, typing the words dear and someone's name, and pressing return would cause the assistant to say, looks like you're trying to write a letter. And with that, Clippy was forever sentenced to memedom. Is that a word? In our heads, we thought this was okay because we were already doing a tip, a little yellow bar across the top of the screen to alert the user to a letter writing feature. This was really a step too far though. It did not help that if you clicked yes, the software would launch an incredibly complicated wizard offering all sorts of options for a letter, most of which went unused. A few years later, the Microsoft researcher who contributed to the Bayesian technology even turned on us in an interview with The Economist and said it was all because we didn't use enough of his Bayesian technology. That really hurt. It was much their work as it was our work. The online version includes The Economist from March of 2001 with this story. The third pillar of bringing the guru to office was to offer the user the calming and comforting personality of a guru. Using a computer was difficult and frustrating, and we set out to bring some levity to the daily grind. Leaning heavily on the work of Nass and Reeves, we developed the actual character to represent the guru, to attach a personality to the source for answers and tips that would encourage help. We also went a step beyond that and decided that the office assistant would be where messages, or alerts as we called them, would come from. The ever-present, do you want to save this file, or the spell check is complete, would emanate from the assistant. This was the biggest and highest risk bet of the entire feature. It is also what separated the feature from the previous dozen attempts at providing help. It wasn't yet another bolted-on tool, but it was in the flow of usage and there to help everyone. Internally, we called this IntelliAssist. The minute we had an animated assistant, it was obvious that any opinion or controversy about the feature would stem from the clown or the character itself. Starting in early 1994, we began the most intensive usability research testing we had done to date on any feature. The number of tests, the number of locations and language, the design ideas we iterated on was kind of mind-blowing. At one point, people were flying to Japan and all over Europe to rerun tests to see how the results might differ. How big should the assistant be? How much noise should it make if the user even had a sound card? How often should it appear? How animated should it be? And so on. The iterations were seemingly endless, all with the goal of making it friendly and approachable while tapping into the fancy underlying artificial intelligence technology. Choosing the actual character was incredibly controversial. It became immediately apparent that everyone had an opinion. And importantly, every major sales geography had their own view of what would work locally. It didn't matter that many animated characters worked globally. There was a strong demand for input and oversight. The risk, after all, was very high. For example, Japan accounted for nearly one-third of office profits because of the unique market there. The lead program manager, Sam Hobson, email Sam H., and an experienced member of the Excel team who joined OPU, also a college hire like the rest of us, had the perfect demeanor for managing all the connections across the company. Perhaps we were naive, but we never sat around contemplating the risk of, to the business of doing this feature. In 1995, platforms revenue was $2.36 billion, and applications revenue, $3.58 billion. Even a small hiccup in office would be a huge deal. 
We weren't comforted in the past sales of the product, but rather sought the comfort of believing we were on a mission to solve an acute customer problem. A problem that left unchecked could materially impact the business. How could a product remain successful if people increasingly disliked it? Sam created huge boards of potential characters for everyone to look at and pick their favorite. They littered our hallways. He would lead tests at shopping malls and markets around the world, understanding preferences. Meanwhile, Nass and Reeves reminded us these preferences were rather predictable and so not as crucial as maybe the salespeople who saw this more as branding than utility believed. In one hilarious early use of these boards, Sam invited the spiritual leader and then Microsoft board member, Mike Maples, to pick his favorite character. Ever the rancher and Oklahoman, everyone thought Mike would pick the big dog or maybe a lion or something. Instead, after browsing dozens of choices, Mike went with the pink bunny rabbit. He smiled and said it reminded him of the rabbits on the ranch. This kind of reaction is what led to the full gallery of choices. While the paperclip, Clip It, a.k.a. Clippy, would be the default, we featured a dog, a cat, a happy smiling dot reminiscent of Bob, a butler, a genius character, and several more, including a really boring office logo for marketing. The scale of Japan's business required us to take their input, and from that, we ended up with the highly controversial Office Lady, or Seiko Sensei, which to many at HQ was less than appropriate. Japan also came to love symbols of nature and guided us to Kairu, a dolphin. And again, there was irony in that choice that made us uncomfortable. We kept those characters to the Japanese version of the product. We would rather later add a small Macintosh computer called Max for back office. Being Microsoft, we had an SDK and even third-party partner that could and would create additional assistance. The character, like the artificial intelligence behind the first two pillars, had a depth of capabilities that often go underappreciated and certainly did at the time. We were severely constrained in disk space and memory, not to mention graphics capabilities, yet wanted to provide reasonable animation. This proved extremely difficult as the expectations for animation had been set by cartoons. At one point, we had the most memorable opportunity to meet with the legendary animators from Walt Disney, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, otherwise known as Frank and Ollie. Together, they were involved with everything from Fantasia to Pinocchio to Bambi and more. An example of a constraint that frustrated us was the window the character was trapped in, the little rectangle. We wanted to do a borderless assistant like in Bob, but the platform constraints were too much when overlaid with regular Windows apps. Frank and Ollie not only relieved us of that, but explained how we should use the window as their stage to allow for entrance and exit and directional animations. They also pushed us to add a sidekick, like Thumper, which was something they had pioneered in animation. They suggested Clip It have something like a little eraser friend. That was well beyond the two dozen or so animation sequences we could have, but really brought us optimism for how the feature could evolve with more platform support. Sound was still nascent on most PCs, constrained by the original MIDI sound capabilities. Windows 95 and multimedia were changing that. We also added a set of sounds that came along with animations, which if a user had them on, made a real difference in the experience. These capabilities were coded throughout the product. The assistant would occasionally just blink or smile or take note of your work. If you stopped typing for a while, it might perk up and notice you, 
Using a technical feature would come with a more substantial technical animation. The assistant was also programmed to get out of the way while you were try trying to type or scroll, which led to a fun game of chase the paperclip using a mouse and the Excel grid, as was commonly shown in demonstrations. As we tested the character in various stages behind one-way glass or in focus groups, there was almost always surprise, and more frequently than most would believe today, praise and support for the feature. It is a cliche for a failed feature to say that it worked in early testing, but that was genuinely the case. Still, as the project progressed, there were many that were nervous or outright hostile. As we showed the product to the hardcore technical audience, the reactions were often visceral and immediate. Either people wanted to immediately turn it off without much consideration, or they would be thoughtful and suggest, well, it's not really for them. But they could see others, read that as less technical, people benefiting. As we would learn time and time again, when core technical users say that something isn't for them, but for others, it too often means that the feature might be good, but it is going to need to get past these gatekeepers. We made a very difficult decision to provide an array of settings to control the various capabilities of the assistant. In other words, we made it possible to turn off. At the same time, we also provided full programmability with Visual Basic for Applications, VBA, so that developers could create custom solutions with full control over the assistant, including adding custom text in the balloons and choosing animations. Imagine how much fun that budget template could be in Excel with custom chatter from the assistant. The online version includes some screenshots of customizing the assistant. The assistant was one part of an enormous release of Office. The remainder of this chapter details some of the other challenges in building off in 97 on the platform and infrastructure described in the previous section. The product reviews were ultimately mixed, but hardly universal, as we'll see in the end of this chapter. We stuck with and improved the assistant in the next release of Office. By the second subsequent release, we retired the feature, albeit in a humorous way. In parallel with Office 97, an effort began to bring the assistant to Windows for use by third-party developers. The Microsoft agent had a much richer set of interactions using early speech recognition and voice, but lacked deeper integration with applications unless coded by developers. Agent was used in Windows XP and remained available for some years. The online version includes several reviews and other artifacts from the era. The journey of Clippy, in spite of our best efforts, that is what the feature came to be called, is one that parallels the PC for me in so many ways. Is it not simply a failed feature or that backhanded compliment of a feature that it was simply too early like so many Microsoft features? Rather, Clippy represents that final attempt at trying to fix the desktop metaphor for typical or normal people so they could use a computer. What everyone came to realize was that the PC was a generational change. And for those growing up with a PC, it was just another arbitrary and random device in life that one just used. As we would learn, kids didn't need different software. They just needed access to a PC. Once they had a PC, they would make cooler, faster, and more fun documents with an office than we grown-ups were. It was kids that loved word art and the new graphics in Word and PowerPoint. And they just used them easily and more frequently than boomers or Gen X trying to map typewriters to what a computer could do. It was not the complexity that was slowing people down, but the real concern that the wrong thing could undo hours of work. Kids didn't have that fear yet. We needed to worry less about dumbing the software down and more about how to make complex things get done in a way that 
had far less risk. The other lesson from Clippy's experience is clearly how amazing it was that Microsoft even considered such a high-risk feature. Imagine doing a feature that you know at launch will have some people significantly annoyed with you, but doing so also knowing you could reach some other new customers and bring joy to customers that were otherwise disworried. The whole business relies on upgrading existing customers and attracting new customers when all of them have an option of doing nothing or going to one of several competitors. The Microsoft that made Clippy is the risk-taking company that I admired so much. It was the failure of Clippy and the lack of repercussions that, in a sense, cemented my own connection to that company. I got way more grief outside of Microsoft than inside. And I needed that because for the next five years of college recruiting trips, I would have to answer snarky questions about Clippy from college students. The deepest pit in my stomach came when I was in New York on a trip at a low point in the Microsoft versus Department of Justice trial. I turned on the hotel television for some late night with Conan O'Brien, and his opening monologue took a swipe at Microsoft. Come on, Bill. Microsoft got off easy compared to what the government did to Clippy, that annoying paperclip icon that pops up in Microsoft Word, followed by a gruesome, violent act perpetrated against poor Clippy. That hurt a lot. The cheers from the studio audience hurt even more. I was totally signed up for the risk and the reviews, but being mocked on my favorite late night show, ouch. Then one campus season, perhaps 2002 or 2003, those snarky comments turned into an expressed love of Clippy. And the comments were, I remember Clippy on my mom's computer at work, or I miss the dog. That was amazing. Only that was later outdone when about a decade later, Clippy transitioned from nostalgia to a high-tech feature that was somehow ahead of its time. I wish I could say that was the case, but it was simply an idea and not a very good one. The implementation was decidedly 1997.